Hi guys and thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of Big Fan of the Human Race. So I was told that my introduction for my guests are too long, but what can I do if my guests have done so much and they're so remarkable and there is so much to say, but I will try to keep this one short, having considered that feedback. <laughs> Today on the show we have Katharina Pistor and uh, she's the Edwin B. Parker Professor of Comparative Law at Columbia Law School and director of the Law School Center on Global Legal Transformation. Uh, she has done a bunch of research in corporate law, corporate governance, money and finance, property rights, so on and so forth. Those of you who follow me somewhat closely would know that I have a keen interest in inequalities and um, why they arise, how to solve them, and what the solutions would cost us. And uh, I read the book written by Katharina, uh, which is called The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality. And I read it really in one night and I made so many notes and I had so many questions. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to reach out to Katharina and uh, try to get her on the show. And, um, you know, given how busy she is and how much she has on her plate with the book release and so on and so forth, she was very keen to do the show and to kind of um, reach maybe younger audience um, when it comes to these types of issues. So without further ado, I promise to keep the introduction short. Uh, in this podcast, Catherine Pisto and I are going to discuss how the law creates wealth and inequality and potentially come up with some solutions uh, on decreasing inequalities and maybe making our world fairer and more just and all of those things. So let's get into the show. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Big Fan of the Human Race. Today I have a very special guest on the show and uh, I'm a big fan of her book, The Code of Capital. Uh, on the show today is Katharina Pister. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. Uh, to kick off the conversation, I've uh, stumbled upon something quite interesting uh, while doing the research on you. And um, I'd like to hear about your time at London School of Economics as a visiting professor, as I understand. I studied LSE now and it's an institution that is close to my heart. So it's, it would well, be interesting, interesting to hear your take. You know, it's actually, this is at the very beginning of my book. I spent a couple of weeks at the LSE. So I had uh, the, a calendar year 2015 off from teaching. I was on a sabbatical and I spent most of the time here in the US, but I did, did um, do a gig at the LSE um, for, you know, in, in March, three or four weeks and spent times wow. with colleagues there. And this was great um, because I had the um, opportunity to share some really premature early ideas about my book with colleagues that I didn't know as well as my own. And so you mm -hmm. get also different type of feedback. I mean, so, you know, first of all, when you go out and you say, well, everything is legally constructed and it's just not just driven by markets and, and the economy um, here in the U.S., I probably would have to get, I'm going to get some pushback from my law and <laughs> economics folks. In London, everybody was saying, yeah, tell me something new, right? So, duh. <laughs> mm. So there was a different, um, I think, a different approach to legal scholarships, which I was aware of from what I've read from these colleagues. But I think there's, uh, um, I think, law and economics and the way that it has been taught and used for research in the United States has made less, fewer inroads few inroads in the um, academy in England. So that was mm -hmm. one, I think, interesting aspect. And the other interesting aspect is that I had actually multiple conversations with Michael Lobben, who is at the LSE, and he's a legal mm -hmm. historian. And he pointed me to great sources that I used to, you know, dig deeper in some to some of the English legal institutions, which I think are critical to understand how the law and the code evolved over centuries. And then 
Last but not least, they organized a really nice symposium um, and uh, where they brought in other researchers from the London um, area and uh, um, surroundings. And so they you know, presented their work, I commented, and then I had also the opportunity to give a lecture and Goodhart was on the panel as well to talk about my work that uh, uh, is a predecessor to the book, which is the legal theory of finance. Um, mm -hmm. So I had, I had a great time there and got a lot of really good feedback. And I think my interactions with colleagues there really helped, um, you know, sort of shape my early thinking about how I want to develop my ideas to make it interesting, not only for an American audience, but hopefully beyond that as well. Awesome. I mean, that's that's great to hear. I think LSE in general has a reputation of more of a uh, left-leaning university. So you have the ideas at LSE and you have had them for a while, the ideas that weren't um, mainstream at all, let's say, in institutions like Oxford and Cambridge and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, that's the reason why this, I think, school was opened in the first place. And I knew Pretty sort of much, the legacy yes. of it. But when you come to lawyers, it's always a kind of a different breed uh, i think almost in every country they're trying to be slightly more conservative so but it was int you know it was good to see that they are still doing this kind of detailed you know also very knowledgeable about the legal institutions which sometimes falls by the wayside when we focus too much on the economics mm -hmm. awesome um just one thing that i uh, you're based now at columbia law school right yes have and been uh, for the uh, last 18 years yeah. yeah for quite a while I've, I've noticed that and um what is interesting is that if if you were to compare LSE and Columbia law schools, I I recently went to New York and I saw the uh, you know the famous I don't know if it's the library or the main building, the one with like the the massive staircase, like mm -hmm. massive white staircase, and yeah. it seems smaller than uh, I imagined it uh, from the films and so on and so forth. But it it feels that the grandeur of Columbia law school is uh, is kind of way ahead of that of of LSE law. Faculty, if you were to compare the work, how does that measure up? You know, it's I I I find that difficult to compare. First of all, Low Library is actually now the main um, administrative offices for the university administration. It used to be mm. the library of the university. We are in the law school, actually, in a 1960s building, just um, a block away. On, on the, I can see mm -hmm. Low Library from my window, but we're little, we, our building is called, called the Toaster. <laughs> and that might also give you the cue. I mean, you know, um, I, I think Columbia Law School has very, you know, great strengths. We're a huge faculty. We're 80 people, people doing lots of different things. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have a very strong um, corporate and finance group, uh, and I would say probably stronger than, than the LSE does, but in other areas, but they have also great people there. Um, uh, and uh, But fewer, um, overall fewer, I think we have the luxury of just having larger faculties and then so there's a different output, right? It's more like a, yeah, it's, it's um, I think size makes a huge difference. And then there is difference in, in academic style for sure, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of your interest in um, in inequality, because I understand where the interest in law comes in, you know, you're a very renowned scholar, and your background is is very much that of a of a of a legal um, scholar. But the interest in inequality is quite uh, kind of intriguing to me, and I'd just like to to explore, you know, the moment or the time period when that really sparked for you, and you wanted to make that connection between law and uh, inequality, be it wealth or income or uh, any other type. 
Yeah, you know, I think it has a longer trajectory. I mean, first of all, as you know, I'm, I'm, my background is that I come from Germany, was trained in Germany. Um, you know, I come from a system where um, attempts were made in the post-war era to uh, create a social market economy, not a pure market economy. Mm -hmm. And then I was very active in the 1990s researching um, transition economies, uh, the former socialist world, um, mostly from the U.S. I was U.S.-based already, but I had a lot of battles here with economists who just thought that they could go in and change the system overnight and then it would be a pure market economy. And in those days, I was already battling, I think, some of the um, not only oversimplistic ideas about what institutions are and how they change, but I also was concerned with um, what the distribution of assets in a country like Russia might look like if you do mass privatization and who would have the resources to organize uh, the uh, um, basically the acquisition of the most valuable resources. Mm -hmm. And I did also write about um, the oil and gas companies and the way they had been privatized at that time. So these issues about, you know, how do actually when we when we set up a system in a certain way, whether it's, you know, we're using the corporate form and we're transforming former socialist entities into a corporation, who controls, who gets what kind of shares and who, um, you know, is basically pushed to sell out their assets and then who gets them at the end is something that I've been thinking about for quite some time. So, you know, I think my deep interest is in transformation. How do systems transform themselves over time? And I, you know, was fascinated by the transformation of the former socialist world. And then after the global financial crisis, I just mm -hmm. thought this is the moment where we have to begin to think seriously about what's going to happen with capitalism. So I brought my interest in transformation to global capitalism. Anglo-Saxon style capitalism and then dug deeper. Um, and so that's how then the book basically eventually came about. But I don't think it, it started with the book. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it was helped by the fact that many people, all of a sudden, inequality was back on the agenda. And I think Piketty, Thomas Piketty, just did a great mm -hmm. job in putting this on the agenda and several of his colleagues and other economists at the same time. It, it was in the air. And I'm sh sure that I was influenced by that. Um, mm -hmm. The subtitle for my book talks about inequality. I, I had the title without the subtitle because I thought I, I just loved the title the way it was. Mm -hmm. But my editor wanted to have a subtitle that explains to people that it, this is actually about the law. It's a code, but it's not, let's say, a software code or a genetic code. So we put that in. And of course, then I insisted that we not only talk about the law, but also about what it does. And I think what it really does is um, it codes uh, both wealth and inequality. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting observation with the subtitle. I've been hearing uh, a lot about the fact that publishers and editors really don't like uh, titles without a kind of a, you know, a snippet of explanation of the context. Mm -hmm. So I hear it a lot that authors really want to to keep the title nice and clean, like the code of capital, you know, it's nice and snappy, sounds good. But the publishers really want to make sure that from the book cover, as I understand, people get yeah. kind of the gist of what the book's about. Yeah. And I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I have to say I'm with them. I've heard from lots of friends and colleagues who picked up the book and said they that really spoke to them, right? So if I just see the title and don't know what it is, I might put it down. It could be, you know, but once I see some of the other cues, the words, wealth and inequality, I have a sense where this book might be going and so I might be interested in it. So mm -hmm. I think they, they, they know more about marketing than I do. And that's, that's fair. And of course, that's of interest to me as well. Mm-hmm. 
that that makes total sense also as a also as a point of reference i come from ukraine originally so the the whole notion of transition economies and uh, ah, the process of go. privatization no, i saw your name and i was wondering but that's interesting yeah so you you lived through this or you were too young to live through it uh, no 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 too young yeah i was born <laughs> in independent ukraine but I've, uh, there was a residue of the socialist system and i was born exactly in the period of uh, mass privatization and this is what really gave birth to the Ukrainian oligarchate and the, yes. the okay. regime that we have now. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Ukraine, not a good example of um, how to do privatization, at, <laughs> at the very least. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting also what you said about inequality being back on the agenda. And uh, I just had Branko Milanovic on the mm-hmm. podcast, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, he has been doing research on inequality and it was very much within the World Bank and it was very much kind of disregarded as kind of the topic that you really don't want to mm-hmm. um, spend too much time on, right? Because mm-hmm. it's neoliberalism and there's a Kuznets curve and we kind of have this agreement that inequality will eventually go down and so on and so forth. Um, but now I'm seeing uh, it's not Inequality is not just back on the agenda after the Occupy movement and the financial crisis among the masses. It's also something that the elites talk about and talk about extensively. Like you see, uh, you know, the hedge fund managers like Ray Dalio and other, you know, Jamie Dimon of um, JP Morgan. Yeah, they're all talking about inequality. And I understand that obviously they're experts in capitalism and how the system works, but just wondering, kind of an almost an intuitive level, what do you what do you think is the deal with extra high net worth individuals suddenly being so concerned about unequal distribution of wealth? So I think they've been hammered in the media um, because some, once the topic is out, everybody's mm-hmm. going to is everybody's looking at the data and um, and especially internally for domestic politics, it's playing itself out in the elections. We're trying to make sense out of the fact that people, you know, who just voted for Obama before now voting for Trump and, and, and you know, it's not really clear that the da- data bear out all the interpretations, but that this has something to do with um, the middle class or the lower middle class stagnating or declining mm-hmm. in real mm-hmm. terms over the last several decades has been in become increasingly clear. And so policies have been put on the agenda or have been threatened to be put on the agenda that directly attack, I think, the, the super rich. And it's a kind of self-defensive move for them. It's a smart move. I think they, they can't get away with it anymore. Um, that they have to explain, you know, whether, why, if it's still okay to trust the market to distribute assets in the way that we have done so in the past, why it's still okay to have like the 1% or the you know, 0.01% having such an amount of resources, whereas the the rest is basically ba- barely getting by, or, th- or those particularly at the lower curve of the um, income curve, so it, or wealth curve. So I think um, it's been it's been out there. It's not only you know people talk about it and people write about it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Piketty's the reception of Piketty's book in the United States also told you that it was in the air, and he just you know just captured this moment where people really wanted to talk about this issue because it was in your face. Mm-hmm. And then once it becomes a public issue because it's constantly talked about in the media and it's becoming part of the political campaigns, I think the um, the uh, you know super rich have no choice but to join the debate and explain you know why what they have is should be justified in one way or another or think about how they can share some of it with the rest of us. 
Mm-hmm. Is it, in your opinion, is it in any way akin to how the uh, the bourgeois started reading Karl Marx once the doctrine was was picking up pace, just to understand if the revolution is feasible and kind of to to get on top of the problem before the whole system is? Yes, uh, I, I would say so. Down. I mean, like you know, there's some even you know, in, in the media, I've got some reports where some um, um, individuals you know buy sort of property in New Zealand and think, okay, if things go really politically wrong here, we'll we'll just head for the exit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think there is a, a certain nervousness and I don't think they're expecting a revolution mm-hmm. but uh, for many it might already be um, problematic if you know some of the um, I don't want to say radical it's just not radical at all but if policies that let's say you know um, some of the democratic presidential contenders would if they were implemented this would take away some of the um, power of rich people to continue to enrich themselves and I think that makes them nervous already and if we get a shift in the political opinion on a large scale that is something to be of concern even if it's not a revolution in the old sense of the word. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you didn't call you know I imagine you're kind of primarily talking about the US political and economic uh, landscape and kind of left-right spectrum. It's interesting that you don't call the leftist ideas of the US politicians radical. Could you just kind of elaborate on this? You know, it's funny. As I said, I'm from Germany and uh, I came, you know, from a system where we uh-huh. talked about a social market economy. And I would say what is being proposed by even Bernie Sanders, certainly um, Senator Warren, is basically in the mid-spectrum of the Social Democratic Party that I grew up with. So mm-hmm. I'm already, I find it interesting and I don't understand why they call themselves, some of them call themselves socialists, like Bernie Sanders or um, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I think that's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a good label in this country, which has fought socialism for so long, both for internal political reasons, but also in the Cold War era. And especially given that whatever they say, you know, universal health care, I don't think that's socialist. I think that's just a decent social policy for a country, for any country that can finally afford it. You know, we should all be happy once we are, have reached that stage and the United States certainly should be happy to do that. And, you know, any policy I look at, whether it's for childcare, whether it's, you know, unemployment insurance or social policies, I think this is squarely what we would call social democratic in Europe. And um, Mm -hmm. that's why it does not look at all radical to me and I'm actually heartened by the fact that some commentators in the media are also saying actually that's it is not radical it's just the normal thing it's just the thing to do to respond to some of the problems that we have the only thing that makes this look radical is if you take a position of you know uh, market fundamentalists of the stripe we've had them in the 1990s and maybe maybe early 2000s but it's not it's not even radical in the longer term history of the Mm -hmm. United States either. Why do you think why do you think they're using the term socialist then? Is it to appeal to to people to the population layers of population that want exactly that the radical kind of language? Is this why? You know, I'm puzzled by that. I mean, I've um, I've even tried to tweet about this, and then I get not a zero like, but I also don't really get a respond. Response, <laughs> so I can't really tell you why they do this because I they haven't explained it. So I can only speculate. I think it's they need a label. Mm-hmm. They need a, need a label that people can hold on to and that means something. For some and for to the rest of them, I think they must believe that they can explain it to them, um, uh, what they really mean um, by using that particular label. But I wished we could go beyond sort of these conventional labels, left, right, and socialist, non-socialist, socialist, capitalist, and just find some some new um, 
ways of expressing the need for you know greater equality, greater um, cohesiveness in society, greater inclusion, um, greater forms of or better forms of, of self-governance again, that I think is all on the agenda for them and for some others as well, but we have to find good ways of um, uh, capturing this in a, in a term, and I, I can't help you out on that one right now, yeah. I, I haven't um, found my the best term either, but uh, that would be nice. <laughs> All right, um, I'd like to now move on to kind of digging into the book, and, and I have a lot of questions uh, that I'd like to go through, but kind of off the bat, I'd like to know your process or approach to researching the material for the book, because it seems that there is such a vast and kind of deep array of literature from you know all kinds of areas you know you kind of talk about uh, a lot of the economic literature you know like Marx and so on and so forth ideological then you talk about uh, Weber and sociological literature and you have Piketty and kind of the uh, capitalism without capital and kind of the more uh, modern books kind of of the new economic thinking and you also have legal stuff and you also have mm. tech books just how did you put this all together and then uh, communicated it in such a in such a um, in such a concise and digestible manner well, I take this as a compliment. Thank you. That was hard <laughs> to get to the digestible um, um, manner. It was really difficult. I think I rewrote the book three times. Um, mm -hmm. So the first time I just um, dug in and did a lot of research and I got hung up a lot with history because, you know, I, I had written this paper on the legal theory of finance and it was clear to me that we have to dig deeper and understand the legal structures of the entire economy, not only financial assets and financial intermediaries. So mm -hmm. I just started to read and I also, since I had an entire year off from teaching and from committee work and I tried not to go to many, too many conferences, I did like gigs at the LSE and spent some time in Frankfurt and at Oxford as well over the course of the year, but mostly to do my research. And uh, so I lost myself also and just, you know, I don't know, the, the, you know, the predecessor of the mortgage, the gauges in the, you know, 12th century England were fascinating to me and I was sitting in the Library of Congress mm -hmm. and did that. But to cut this a little shorter, I mean, I, I've always done a lot of interdisciplinary research. I teach a class on law and development. I've always tried to be sort of on, on top of different literatures that deal with how institutions change over time and what the processes are so there's no way you can pass by Max Weber and, and other writers um, on that and also more contemporary writers as well. Um, mm -hmm. And what I, what I basically did, I first tried to understand what I thought were really the key institutions, the key legal structures that I describe in the book as well, like the trust or the or property rights mm -hmm. or collateral law or the corporation and bankruptcy law, intellectual property law, and try to understand their historical trajectory, how they evolved over time. And my first draft of the book basically was talking about these institutions, following these institutions over time. And then I thought, you know, I wanted to write a book for non-lawyers. And I just thought, you know, other than you and me and some others, just, you know, people won't get really fascinated by the trust, no matter what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to basically step back and rethink how I could um, make this more accessible. And so I finally ended up saying I have to write the book around the core assets that have been coded as capital. And for that, actually, um, Thomas Piketty's book came handy because he has this chapter, chapter three in his book, where he talks about the metamorphosis of capital. Mm -hmm. And he gave me the evidence that showed that until the end of the 19th century, 
agricultural land, rural land, was the most important source of wealth in the Western mm -hmm. world. And then over the course of the 20th century, this changed and um, financial assets and urban real estate became the core assets, right? And so he explains that as any economist would with sort of changes in you know demand and supply, technological shifts and things like that. And I just thought, oh no, there's got to be more here, right? There must have been some, you know, recoding of assets because financial assets just doesn't pop up because there is demand. It has to be also structured in a certain way to become an asset that is um, a wealth generating um, mm -hmm. asset. So then, you know, then I rewrote the entire book around so the land and the debt and firms and intellectual property rights and, and then the rest followed. But it took me a while to get there. Yeah. So a lot of work, it seems. That's, <laughs> that's the answer of how you produce something like yeah. this. Makes sense. Uh, and also probably natural talent and so on and so forth. I, when I um, when I looked at the subtitle, right, that as you said, you originally weren't too keen on including in the first place, but I think it, I agree with you that it, it does make sense and does put the title in, into context. It goes how the law creates wealth and inequality. Now, I, I can uh, imagine a few people saying that the law doesn't create wealth and inequality, it, it kind of systematizes it and it makes sure that wealth and inequality is generated and accumulated and transferred in a way that is fair or in a way that is structured, not necessarily creating it. What would you kind of, what would your response be? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it's good. It's a good question, and um, I think it, you know we can we can debate that, and I think reasonable people can disagree on this. I think it creates. Um, it does create because you know as I try to say in the introductory chapter as well, people can have luck. And they can be actually also great entrepreneurs, and they can accumulate riches for some time. Mm -hmm. But there's no way they can protect this over long periods of time, or they can protect this against anybody who comes and contends what they have gathered. For that, mm -hmm. they need more. So you could say, the story still, still says, you first create sort of, you know, the first bundle of riches that you accumulate, this is what you do, you grab them, like sort of, it's, it's primitive accumulation, as Marx would have said. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then um, you create um, more sophisticated forms over time. But it, it could be really short-lived um, without the legal protections. And so that's the first point. The second point is, I don't think we've ever had um, wealth on the scale um, that we've seen before we had individual property rights, for example, right? So when mm -hmm. people look at when did the growth period kick off, when do, did the first industrializing nations like England, when they when they start when did they start grow and and you basically came out of these centuries and millennia of just sort of plugging along growing at re very very low rates well it's exactly the moment when we uh, turn property into uh, individual rights that can be monetized right so you need the mm -hmm. law to monetize um, your assets and then when you move from land to other assets when you move to financial assets they are creatures of the law there is no financial asset that is tradable that doesn't exist, that exists outside the law. It's all, it's, it's you know, claim, a claim to future repayment. Now we can make each other promises that you will do, pay me whatever amount we agree to, but unless I have somebody who can force you to pay that amount, I have just have no guarantee that you will, right? So mm -hmm. every financial asset, so the, the most important assets since the beginning of the 20th century that create wealth 
these days of financial assets and yes also urban real estate but urban real estate lives off credit finance as well so that these are creatures of the law and then push further going to intellectual property rights your field right mm -hmm. they exist only in the law right that's why we have a specific provision in the u.s constitution that says you know the congress has the power to adopt law um, about intellectual property rights that you can't assume intellectual property rights to have existed outside the law. They have to be created. And when you look at what is the most important um, value-creating assets of many publicly listed corporations today, intellectual property rights, trademarks, um, patents, um, goodwill sort of sometimes folded into that. Mm -hmm. And then we mm -hmm. get to data, the la latest, I think, of the assets that are being monetized now, um, uh, you know, they are a, 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 beer, a weird bunch, I would say, but I think unless you, unless you capture them and declare them to be your own, as the tech companies are doing, you can't monetize them either, right, and protect them against others' um, um, abuse um, that you want to control. So in that sense, I think we have moved, at least, if not started, <laughs> and I would say, say started, but even if you take that away from me, I would say we've moved to the types of assets that are themselves creatures of the law and therefore the law creates wealth by allowing you to fashion these assets in the law mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay i think i think this this type of explanation makes sense it's if we talk about right so so we have kind of the you know two bodies of two schools of thought there is natural right and there is kind of the people that believe that things are more structured and more kind of created whether by law or by society so on and so forth if we think about inequality right and uh, you in one of your one of the chapters you say that uh you know wealth leads begets creates more wealth but it's not done so by nature it's done so because uh the legal system is is enabling this type mm -hmm. of accumulation mm -hmm. but if we think about inequality and in distribution of um pretty much everything you know if we think about height or we think about uh eye color hair color if we think about the animal kingdoms of different species and so on and so forth we can see that the assets or the resources tend to t tend to be accumulated or tend to skew to that kind of top one or ten percent it depends on the kind of group that we're looking at have you thought about the um kind of apart from human beings there are some examples of extreme inequalities in the natural world and just what do you think of those Oh, you know, I think yes, of course there are. You think about ants <laughs> and the, you know, the the queen um, of the ants or bees mm -hmm. or so. There are very uh, complex hierarchical structures or elephants. Uh, they're apparently um, led very often by a female um, elephant cow, I guess you call them, um, and have complex social structures themselves. I do think you know, the elephants do you know, by the way, why the elephants are led by female elephants? I don't. I think, Do well, I've, yes, I've read that it's because uh, uh, female elephants remember the water source. Mm -hmm. So they, they can lead the elephant pack or group because they are the ones that in the childhood their moms show them the water source and the boys mm -hmm. are just, the male elephants are just kind of chilling and not remembering anything. So you have yeah. to follow the female elephant. It's interesting. 
Yeah, no, I think you know, I think we have um, we have hierarchy in in animal societies, and we've had hierarchy and uh, differences in wealth accumulation before we've had um, complex legal systems, and and uh, you know, this is basically done by um, you know in, in part in, in the human history could say by brute force there's also something like you know survival instinct and somebody has the capacity to organize um, survival you know I'm reminded about um, the, the the book chapter that Charles Tilly who used to teach here at Columbia um, wrote about war making and state making as organized crime and he basically says you know states are created by a couple of thugs getting together beating up other thugs mm -hmm and then finding ways of organizing themselves um, and to f fend off foreign um, uh, competitors or outside competitors and they have to then defend themselves against inside competitors and um, and then have to bribe the friends of the inside um, so their, their own friends to s set up basically a system where they can peacefully rule and last but not least they have to extract resources from the rest to fi finance all mm -hmm. of the above mm -hmm. you know defending yourself against external enemies internal enemies and so forth so you can describe, of course, the emergence of even relatively complex social systems in the human world in those um, uh, terms. And I guess there are evolutionary bio biological explanations for what happens in the animal world. What I want to s wanted to say with this book, it may be true that we very often find some kind of a you know hierarchical um, organization in society, and that's why we could might want to naturalize it all. But we have basically created a structure that is entirely human-made and you know, socially constructed, as a sociologist would say, that we could have also used for different purposes um, and mm -hmm. that has now skewed the system in such an extreme way. And I think it's an extreme way that you might not even find in your animal world that it's actually time to step back and ask ourselves, how have we done that, right? And, and who was behind that? And, and who are the drivers? Who's making decisions on behalf of whom? Especially after we have decided, you know, like 200 years ago that we wanted to live in democracies and we wanted to live in societies that govern themselves. And if we govern mm -hmm. themselves and create the law to do so, how can it be that some can use the law in such an extreme way to, to fashion their own, own wealth? Um, uh, so, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, th yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think it's also... It's also similar to what uh, Yuval Noah Harari is talking about when he, um, in Sapiens, he talks about how much of what we believe is natural is actually a story that we have created. He says, yeah. you know, human rights, there is no such thing. Yeah. There's just no such thing. We decided that this is something that we have reason to value and now it is kind of universal. So by the same token, we can tell ourselves another story if we arrive at it. That's the, you know, the extreme... Um, wealth inequality for example is something that uh, undermines the social fabric and distorts our society in ways that aren't, aren't acceptable let's say mm -hmm. but I, i'd like to go back to the private property point and to me and also you know coming from a socialist country in the past it's private property as a as an institute was kind of created with a very noble goals right in mind so you you want to defend yourself and your property from not only the challengers, it, as, as you've kind of given examples of, like the other people or companies in the system, but also from the state. And, uh, you know, there is vast history that state can get quite exploitative and quite oppressive in the wrong circumstances. So 
how how did this transformation of private property as kind of post-French Revolution noble idea of freedom, uh, how did it transform into something that allows, you know, I- injustice? Some might argue on such a such a such a scale. Um, you know, I think that first of all, I would say this. You know, this we have a pre-revolutionary, pre-French Revolution story. I was just thinking, you know, you know John Locke. Um, you know, John Locke is actually is mm-hmm. one of these uh, major natural law philosophers who has talked a lot about private property and that you know you have a right to something when you devote your own labor to it and you create something out of it, so that then it should be yours. And that's a it's a great way to think about also the the freedom aspect. So we create and sort of we put our labor into that; it should be ours. But we also should not forget the, the, the background against which he wrote that uh, particular notion of property rights. He was a British official in North America and it was about justifying taking away the law from the Indians um, who had not done, settled down and um, used agriculture to improve mm-hmm. um, the land and, and therefore did not have rights to property. So, uh, you know, I think again, you know, this goes back to what you said earlier, when we come up with these explanations they typically... Um, you know, have certain uh, context in which they're also being used to um, empower some vis-a-vis others. This is always the case. Um, beyond that, if you just think about like institutional evolution, yes, property rights are exactly at the, they're ambivalent in that sense. They can exist only if there's a state. And if the state can guarantee property rights, that's Hobbes, right? It can also mm-hmm. take it away from you. If, it, if the state can appease society, it can also basically um, suppress us. And that's precisely the dilemma and I think what we what we have done exceedingly we've basically said okay we're trying to push back the state but we have to rely on it we're totally dependent on the state and at least the threat of its coercive powers to create the private assets that we want and we use private property rights and we use analogy and analogical reasoning to transpose these ideas of ever different onto ever different assets but always with with in our mind in the back of our minds with the idea that um, this could be enforced if necessary with the coercive powers of the state, without that these things would not exist would not have that value could not be easily um, tradable. So so and what you then see in the next step that we are using mm-hmm. property rights and turning around and using it against the state. There is always this freedom fight in there, right? Don't take it away from me. It's it's really mine, and you actually promised to me that it was mine. Um, but it can also then be pushed yet to another um, level, as we see in bilateral investment treaties, right? Where foreign investors tell states, "You can't adopt this law because you're infringing on my investments, and I'm getting the protection that you I would otherwise get only if I had a true property right." But we're expanding the scope of protection. So, this is. I think it's an ambivalent relationship, but it's also, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, um, um, uh, they, they, it belongs together. They're joined at the hip. We can't have one without the other. And so the question is always, what is the right balance? Mm-hmm. It's also on this note in the book, you talk about the, uh, how, you know, how global capital really is. And, you know, it's no secret that capital is uh at its most mobile point, maybe arguably there was another time in history, 19th century, when it was also very mobile, but in a different way. But, uh, you know, undoubtedly, capital is moving across borders at uh, some remarkable scale and, and pace. But you talk about the fact that state power is still very much relevant, because in order to protect the, um, I believe it is the durability part of the code of capital, right, in order to protect that, um, 
you and convertibility and others also you have to have a state nation state legal systems that kind of enforce that right just a question on as as you know globalization is uh, is uh, on its course to um you know kind of really penetrate every economy the question is how is is the state power diminishing in this sense and uh, how big is the private um, code of capital in in this kind of ecosystem yeah let me just um, make a suggestion i think we should clarify the attributes of the uh, of of capital because you talked about durability and and convertibility yeah. we have not yeah. explained this to the um, listeners yeah. so i mean for the listeners i hope that you actually read the book before the interview i'm going to advertise it on social but understand okay, that you. not everyone will uh, but. but let me just say that you know i'm i'm basically saying there are ca- several attributes um that belong to capital and you have to have at least some of them um not necessarily all and the key attributes are a priority which means that the asset holder has a priority right vis-a-vis others um uh, durability um, means that you extend these priority rights over time so you can protect it um, over longer periods. Um, then you have convertibility, an option to convert the asset that you have into something that is might be better at Con- um, holding its current uh, value that's particularly important for financial assets and universality which means that all of the above can be protected against anybody not only your direct contracting parties um, and and so so this is also what why it's i think i think apparent why the state has to be in here because um, these kind of priority rights uh, or convertibility option or even durability over time and of course universality is against the rest of the world world and here's of course the latin we have to say erga omnes here <laughs> against <laughs> the world that's the point right and you can't do this on your own privates can't, cannot do this on their own so what does this mean for global um, capital and i'm basically posing this in the book as a puzzle if i'm right that all these attributes are coded in law and they ultimately can be traced back to a state that has coercive powers how can we have global capitalism how can we have global capital because we do not have a global state and mm-hmm. we do not have global law mm-hmm. in a re- really meaningful way and i'm basically arguing you could have a global capitalist system um, that is rooted in a single domestic legal system as long as all the other legal systems all the other states or most of them accept and enforce the kind of legal creatures that this first legal system produces and in fact we have not one but two legal systems that create most of the financial capital that is traded globally and these two legal systems are um England and the state of New York um you could add Delaware for corporate law um, but but basically you can bring it down to actually remarkably few domestic legal systems because we have this additional set of legal rules that um lay people don't know much about which we call either international private law in continental Europe or um conflict of law rules which basically mm-hmm. determine state by state under what conditions they will respect foreign law and enforce it with their own courts um whether the parties have chosen it or the c- parties might also have chosen the courts and then the question is what is the scope of legal institutions that is um uh, up for grabs that the parties can opt into can elect themselves into to write um their their, their contracts or to protect um their types of assets so for the global assets i would say you know most of what is all, most of the assets that are globally traded are written under english law or the laws of new york/ slash 
Delaware for corporate law. Um, most other legal regimes will now accept that, of course, contracts you can choose, but you can also choose the place where you put a corporate entity. And with the place of the corporate entity comes the property rights of that place for the assets that this entity creates and issues. And so you have a whole package of things that you can just, you know, locate in a particular um, jurisdiction and then it can travel globally. So you can still say we have courts backing it, we have a legal system mm -hmm. backing it. If we haven't written something in the contract, we have default rules that we can back into and use them to interpret the contract. But we can travel with this asset or the entity um, globally. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, in this kind of uh, uh, increasingly convoluted global code, right, with, you know, there is international private law, and then there is all kinds of different arbitration, then there are the bilateral investment treaties, and then there is national laws, and conflict, and then the competition laws, so many different things, uh, right, kind of enabling this system and fueling this system. Do you think that, uh, and, you know, you argue that, this system is creating substantial um, substantial injustice, right? If we think about the wealth distribution and uh, it is exclusionary uh, in, a, in a few aspects, including the legal language and including the bureaucracy and including the financial investments that one has to make in order to equip themselves to perform best in this kind of code, right? Do you think that uh, lawyers are aiding and abetting uh, in this case? Well, I call them the masters of the code, right? They they're are. only aiding and abetting, they're doing it. Um, and that's, it might come um, as a shock to many lawyers because lawyers think of themselves as um, uh, at most agents of their clients, not as masters. And of course, that's true in a certain way because they're hired by clients. And mm -hmm. I think very often also the ideas about what should be done and what you want to achieve come from their clients. So many lawyers would describe themselves as in the packaging industry. They're just, you know, packaging mm -hmm. whatever the client wants into law to make sure that the client can meet his or its um, or hers um, goals in the in the in the long in the long run, and um, I think at a descriptive level this is true. But if you dig a little deeper, you also realize again when you, especially when you when you are with me, saying the law creates wealth, um, and so when you package stuff, you're not only packaging really, you are indispensable, um, and you're really creating the structures that will fly and will enable your client to um, uh, generate uh, additional income and to protect this as wealth over, over longer periods of time. And you do this by choosing the jurisdiction, finding the corporate shell, using the trust structure, finding the, light, the right collateral um, rules, making sure that this is all you know within um, the existing regulatory framework so you don't violate any rules so that it can be enforced and you it will not be struck down, hopefully in the future. So th um, uh, so I think that's why I'm saying the, the, the true masters here are the, are the true masters of the code are the transactional lawyers. Much of the work is done outside the public view um, in, in, in interaction with their clients um, and many of the documents in, that are used to code capital are inaccessible because they are private uh, contracts and, and most of us have not seen um, but a few of those and, and even when you go to major you know regulatory or supervisory organizations you know central banks and others they don't have these contracts either right they have some basic information about the nature of the assets but they don't have the contracts either so it, there's a whole world right and um, of uh, 
contractually, transactionally designed economic relations that must be backed by the state because they create these hierarchical relations, priority and durability, convertibility, universality, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that can exist only and have their power only because there's state law and states standing behind them. But how you use them to create private wealth is, I think, the huge added value, the indispensable added value that the masses of the code bring to capital. It's it's interesting. This uh, this kind of conversation is for me is is very relevant if we think about tax avoidance innovation. You know, with tax avoidance, we see a clear system of uh, kind of uh, it's like an obstacle course of uh, trying to make sure that you pay as little tax as you possibly can by uh, managing and structuring your assets in a way that produces the the, the least tax burden possible right and also from my experience and from uh, kind of speaking to a few few lawyers tax lawyers are just remarkably brilliant at this and uh, mm -hmm. they're also disproportionately remunerated for that type of job but from what i've heard being a really really good tax lawyer takes a lot of kind of raw cognitive ability and the ability to untangle these kind of structural systems but um I, i'd like to ask your opinion on the power of the society to to kind of produce checks and balances for this type of system so we have tax avoidance right and it's it's clear as day and you give examples of i think it's apple and lehman brothers in the book but you know we can think about starbucks or amazon is now kind of uh, the, the 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 big bad wolf of capitalism it, it's clear how it's it's not clear in the sense of the system by which they do it but it's clear that they do avoid paying tax that is really supposed to be paid logically speaking right based on uh, you know, where they are doing their business and who they're employing and so on and so forth, where they're generating most of their profits and so on. But uh, we see that the... Just wondering, what is your view on the power of the public and the society to uh, ke keep those companies in check and to keep them to account? When we saw with Starbucks that paid zero tax, uh, zero pounds in tax in the UK for like five years... Uh, being pushed by the public boycotts and by George Osborne, I think it was a few years ago, into paying a uh, substantial amount, not everything that was supposed to be due, but a, quite a hefty sum uh, to the Inland Revenue in the UK in taxes. So if we take this tax avoidance as an example of a convoluted system that allows for unjust wealth accumulation, can the public produce a strong enough pushback? Yeah, I think I think there are several strategies, and I would distinguish two. And um, uh, one, of course, is to say, maybe taxes should stop the race to the bottom with tax holidays and uh, tax deductibles and and all kinds of you can be a non-resident uh, player and therefore be exempt from taxes here and blah 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 blah. They should do less of that. On the other hand, you know, I think it's also true that some states can uh, attract business only if they offer that, and, and if they have nothing else that they can do, I can't condemn them for doing this. Um, but I think states that are, you know, um, well often this is where the electorate of course could have an impact and say we want to have a code, a tax code that doesn't have um, such loopholes but obviously in some countries, um, you know, tax <laughs> reforming the tax code is one of the hardest things because they're just fundamentally entrenched interests and these are the mm -hmm. uh, beneficiaries of the loopholes um, and of course also the tax lawyers and the tax mm -hmm. accountants. But are they, are they actually loopholes? Because loopholes is something that is unintended in my mind. 
You know, there can be, of course, um, gaps that are, in, or, or let's call it something else. There are, you, you give them ex, you know, explicit holidays and mm -hmm. give them, you know, preferential tax treatment or give them the opportunity to pay no taxes because you think there are other benefits that you can get. And that could be, in theory, this could be addressed through direct legislation. So in principle, the people should have access to that. But as we know, um, these uh, particular issues are very hard to tackle because there are just too many interests involved. Mm -hmm. I also have to say, you know, having done my historical research and you know going back to you know the predecessor of the trust, which I, which is the vehicle for to for tax avoidance, if not evasion, that is used because it's a legal shell that allows you to put some assets, you know, in a trust away from your own personal assets or, and then um, the tax creditors or other creditors cannot reach it. But there was. Uh, and uh, legal institutions that preceded the trust, which was the use. And then there was mm -hmm. a statute of the use, which says this is you're do avoiding taxes back then, you know, 12th, 13th century, 14th century, you're avoiding taxes, we're striking down these institutions, you can use the use only for certain types of purposes. Well, the next thing the lawyers did, they, was they invented the trust. <laughs> and mm. then some courts um, um, sanctioned the trust. So um, the uh, if lawyers have learned one thing, I think that where they honed their skills for every other regulatory arbitrage that they're doing is with tax law. They've always done this and we will always be in a catch-up um, situation vis-a-vis -vis mm. these structures. Having said that, I don't think it's nothing that we can do. Mm -hmm. I would never rely just on, on, on taxes. I, this is, I think, my, my issue of contention with Thomas Piketty and his friends. I don't think a capital gains tax or other tax interventions alone can do the trick because I know these lawyers <laughs> and I've studied mm -hmm. their ability to, to deal with this for too long. I think we have to think about whether the state should condone mm -hmm. things like that by offering basically its coercive powers to protect these kind of structures. So take a corporate shell in the Cayman Islands or name any other Jersey, any mm -hmm. other tax paradise. Um, we're trying to blacklist these jurisdictions. Um, that's what the OECD does and others. But why don't we say, if you have no business there, no employees, you're taking the same directors, a couple of lawyers and others, accountants from the Cayman Islands that sit on every other shell in this jurisdiction. It's, a, it's basically not, not a real firm with any kind of business operation whatsoever. We will not respect the legal form, which basically means we don't respect that this is a separate legal entity and that we should treat its assets as its own. Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll mm -hmm. thereby basically say that another entity, the parent company or another subsidiary that's somewhere in between is the one that is the real entity to which we account certain ex um, um, uh, profits and where we would then also do our tax accounting and tax responsibility. Um, so we could basically fight back on the same terms that the lawyers, the master coders have fought and say, yeah, you have coded this, but the state will look through these structures if the only purpose of using these structures against the state, you know, you take our law and you use it to fend off the state when it tries to enforce legitimate, democratically adopted taxes, we will just disregard and set aside this particular structure. Mm -hmm. Now, will this be easy? No. But at least it gives us like a more decentralized approach where state after state could say, we'll set this aside, we'll just look at that. We s assume now this is not a separate entity, but it's actually um, part of um, the parent company or another entity in the group, and we'll tax it on that basis. Mm -hmm. Does this type of strategy require global cooperation, you think? No. 
Not necessarily, but what not necessarily. I mean, like of of course they will try then to hide it somewhere else. But the taxing state of the parent or the taxing state that has some will basically have to look, you know, go out and say, okay, so where are your assets? And then they say, oh, well, they came an island, separate entity. And then you say, well, you know, I think this is you are the hundred percent owner of this Cayman Island entity. You know, it's yours, and then you tax mm. it on that level. But that's the beauty of it. But won't they just move to another, reincorporate themselves somewhere else, and then that? But that state well, loses they might reincorporate the parent. That's what they would have mm. to do. Mm-hmm. Or the, uh, and then if other states just get on the bandwagon, this becomes harder. But they can't just reincorporate. You know, if, if you say you blacklist the Cayman Island or the Cayman Island changes its laws, it's a current strategy, then you just find another jurisdiction that offers itself as a tax haven. Mm-hmm. If states say that have taxable jurisdiction over any entity in a multinational group, will say, you know, let me have a closer look at other assets, and that includes entities where you, you know, pretend this is a legal shell and you can't go through, we basically consolidate this back into you. And there, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that no tax system does this right now, but I think we mm-hmm. should do that and disregard corporate forms or trust vehicles that we use for the sole purpose of fending off a tax claim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Taxes seem to be uh, something that is very, very basic, uh, yet it is, a, as, you, as you've pointed out, it's a very difficult conversation to have uh, because people are all over the political spectrum and there is so much misunderstanding over what different taxes actually are and how, you know, how much revenue is collected. You can see that with the debate around inheritance tax that is in reality a tiny proportion yeah. of tax revenue, yet it dominates the tax discourse. Um, Just let me say on, on this, like inheritance, um, you know, even protecting inheritance is a way to give you durability, right? We're mm-hmm. respecting that you have accumulated something that you can transfer to somebody else. And then and that is already also, you, you, ha- you, don't, you have this only by virtue of the law. And when you then get these big fights over having, you know, whether or not you have to share something with the state. Um, yes, but I, I'm with you. This is where the battles are. Mm-hmm. And this is also similar to the um, the you said one of the main uh, defenses against a challenger is the argument that it's legal. Uh, you know, this is legal, hence I have the right to conduct my affairs in this way. So there is this validation, right, of a certain type of conduct by the law. So then, you know, my suggestion about a public going against it would mean that the public has to also get out of the mindset that if it's legal, then it is probably the right thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think we have to understand that, you know, this is, of course, that gives um, these structures and the use of law in this way so much legitimacy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think this is a really hard issue. This is a really complex issue that is worth debating because, you know, we govern ourselves through law. Um, We conduct ourselves in large, complex societies through legal arrangements. And my goal is not to delegitimize law per se. But I think we have to recapture it for legitimate self-governance. Um, and I think the way in which we have outsourced the use of law for private gain um, on the scale that we've done that, that in and of itself begins to erode the legitimacy of law precisely because the argument always comes, but it's legal so it should be fine. And we have even the authority, the state's mm-hmm. backing to do so, even if it hurts hurts everybody else. And of course it must be legal because it would if it wasn't legal, you know, nobody would be able to trade these assets on a global scale and nobody would want to buy this. If I can't enforce it tomorrow, can I buy it? But here is also another entry point to think about, you know, um, gaining back some power over law and over the code, which is to say, mm-hmm. you know, we might just not enforce your structure. 
and just pre-announce this. If there's there are things that are you know you know frankly against the public interest, and you can specify more clearly what that means, or there are used primarily for tax avoidance or for regular arbitrage, we will not enforce. And there is already something that the Dodd Frank Act, United States, um, has something you know when when you give mortgages that have done none, no background check whatsoever, there is a warning in the code that says we, we might not enforce these contracts and. Some insiders in the industry suggest that that's uh, one of the reasons the industry didn't want to come back, because they were afraid that they might create something that would not be enforceable. But I think we have to do that, because we have to say, well, you can use the law for all kinds of things, legitimate business, and we want you to use it. We've created these forms to make it easier to do business. But using it primarily to arbitrage around legitimate rules or taxes and to thereby, thereby generate private wealth that goes too far. And so we will just destabilize and think twice before we enforce your contracts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, this is a very interesting solution. Yeah, and I, and I, I see how, you know, I think people have this binary view of we either have a functioning society with law being, you know, the replacement for morality, or we have, uh, you know, complete chaos if we start, mm. you know, questioning something that is legal being, uh, you know, an unfair practice. Yeah, I think I think we have to have some level of nuance here. Um, I'd like to also, the, I'm not sure if you've read uh, Scheidel's book, The Great Le Leveler, but, I have not yet. but it talked it talks about uh, how basically the most the four horsemen of uh, equality are like famine plague war and so on and so forth so the way and Piketty also talks about that in the capital 21st century that one way to equalize the society is by uh, you know either going to war and then completely devastating the economy so that you have to redistribute capital or just destroying the capital in some other form so this is the quickest way um, to to make things more equal and uh, when I saw that title the great leveler for some reason I instantly thought of the internet and I thought you know surely internet and the knowledge economy is something that takes out some of those um, some of that wealth accumulation that have has been going on for you know centuries really and it means that it might not matter that you have a land and and a factory because someone's going to come up with an idea and that's you know going to completely disrupt the market and it seems like such a such a meritocratic thing right and on the internet also it doesn't you know arguably doesn't matter you know what, what you know the color of your skin or your social background it's just if you're good enough you're rated highly as a freelancer or whoever and then you know you can really carve out a space for yourself kind of that's I, you know, I'm a massive fan of the internet and a big optimist um, in that direction. But it seems that, and, and also the conversations that arise is that the digital economy and the knowledge economy can in fact end up being even more unfair in, in terms of, or even more skewed in terms of the distribution of uh, wealth and power. Just wondering what you think about this and, and how can it be that something that is that seems to be much more meritocratic can end up exacerbating the existing inequalities. Yeah, 
Because you enclose it, as we have enclosed land, we have enclosed the internet, right? Um, my colleague Tim Wu has written a lot about that, and um, it's it's a repeat game as well. So there seems to be this new huge playing field to which everybody has access. And in contrast to land, you know, if I use the internet, I don't prevent you from using the internet. It's kind of almost non-rivalrous and mm -hmm. interesting way. So it could have been, and many dreamt that it would have been and should have been this big space where we can compete on much you know, equal terms and, and, and many could come forward and, and, and develop their own ideas. And I'm not saying this has, has not happened at all, but of course we also know that the internet has been captured for other purposes. We're all being surveyed, according to Zuboff, now as we use the internet, others are gathering our data and are monetizing that, right? Mm -hmm. So people have figured out how to use this new thing, um, our communications on the internet, our ideas that we sort of share with others on the internet, to use this not necessarily directly by stealing the ideas themselves, but, but using our interactions in ways to create a new asset data um, mm -hmm. and monetize those. And even before that, you know, we, we had all, the, all these battles with these internet servers and whether they give others access to it. And you have, um, you know, antitrust issues with different companies that control the internet trying to get ahead of each other and trying to control the whole thing. So going back to Tilly, it's not only like state making um, um, and, uh, and war making is organized crime, but basically organizing a market has many features of organized um, crime as well. So mm -hmm. people saw the potential and they captured it and those with greater resources to start with and those who knew how to use the law to create boundaries through intellectual property rights or technological boundaries to access to their goods, they had a head start. You just, you know, build, first you've built fences and hedges and then you use the law to protect your spheres of interest and I think that has happened um, with the internet and, and, and then we've been turned into, you know, objects of wealth creation or our, ourselves. And uh, these are processes that are difficult to counter. Again, I think we have to be smart about this. You know, it's, we can't do this with a sledgehammer, but um, sometimes we must use structural um, um, approaches by breaking up companies or just to get ahead of the game. I think it won't take long until they become get big again, but at least to have a breathing space where we can think politically about what we want and how to go um, about achieving um, some of that. Uh, but, um, you know, I think uh, I'm sometimes thinking back, you know, conversations that the people who were very enthusiastic as you about the internet in the 1990s and sort of the space for everybody and it should not be enclosed and we shouldn't have property rights and it should be really regarded as a commons. I'm just thinking back, I'm thinking whether we should have done more like defensive, let's say, property, propertization or def like we do defensive patenting, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, so if you don't mm -hmm. want others to prevent you from working on something because they will try to patent something and exclude you, maybe you have to patent it to preserve this space for yourself. And in, in, you know, in that fashion, fashion, I'm just thinking whether we should have created some kind of a trust. Um, and, and have basically said this is basically a commons that we will protect if necessary with the coercive powers of the state as a commons and not as a private uh, monopoly for some. Uh, and I think the same mm -hmm. is true for data now. If we you know, don't think about how to protect data from being just captured like wild animals in the past. Once you capture it, it's, they're yours, right? And, but that might not be such a great um, thing for ourselves. Wh what we could do to make sure that um, there is a space. But I think we need 
legal protections because the other side is working with legal aggression and um, so we need to find ways to respond in kind. It's, I think, too naive to just believe this is this new space out there and everybody will be happy and, <laughs> and just use this um, and, and, and share it with everybody else. No, people will see that there is advantage in trying to control it and they will use every tool in the book to achieve control. Then I'd like to kind of uh, go into the concluding section really and talk about the last chapter of the book where you uh, give a glimpse of uh, your your views on how this should be handled from now on. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the beginning of the of our conversation you've noted you've uh, mentioned that you're really thinking uh you know these kind of months about or years maybe about uh restructuring the system that let's say we take for for not necessarily for granted but as a as a given or as a as one that has naturally arisen and doesn't have any alternatives so if we think about the system now you you talk about two things that we have to as a society or as a collection of societies that we have to Uh, really agree on first one is our view of who an individual is and the second one is our understanding of what freedom is and uh, I'd like to hear your take on both of these yeah no I think um, uh, you know I I think of us you know of course with individuals with um, certain individual rights and that of course can include um, you know property rights and all the rest but that can also go overboard if you then claim that you can use the legal code for whatever that benefits you without um, looking um, to what the effects are on the rest of us. Um, you know, I, th- I think of the legal system as a, as a social resource um, that, we've cr- that we create for um, primarily for the ability to self-govern and to do this, you know, without having to use either power force or without having to go back to a state that approves everything you do. I, I cherish the quasi-autonomous way in which law can be used, but I think I also mm-hmm. want to remind ourselves is that when we use it, we're using it as a social resource, not only that it's meant to protect our, um, us as individuals, um, uh, but not to an, um, such an extreme. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, freedom in that sense, of course, is a freedom that is always with limits and everybody serious about these issues will say that um, that there is no unbounded freedom in society and so we're always part of that and we can't survive you know without society Montesquieu the French philosopher of the Enlightenment wrote about this other the the individual on its own is just a shuddering little um, um, uh, thing in in the world universe and doesn't know what to do Mm -hmm. and uh, so we are empowered through law and I think that is a great thing we're giving this social resource to individuals to uh, protect themselves against other private um, uh, individuals, but also against the state. Um, but also, I think we have to think as as a as a group that creates that social resource more about the ends to which we want to use or have this resource used, and and the limits that we have to build into that to make everybody aware again that this is not just you know I'm a, I'm out here on my own and can do whatever, and if I n- n- no longer like it, I'm just going to jet out of the system and mm-hmm. put myself into a nice place in New Zealand or on the moon or wherever um, but you know we, we have to somehow f- sort this out um, together so that's this is my, so my basic thinking I don't say this exactly like this in the book I think but I, I'm alluding to that mm-hmm. you also mentioned that uh, also in the end of the book you talk about the fact that law is central in organizing society and I agree with that but also it's ineffective without power when you say without power do you mean the power as we've discussed before with the 
let's say, one way to strip law of its power is to not recognize the Cayman Islands incorporated companies or something like that. Is this what you mean by law is ineffective without power or something well, else? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, as I say also in the beginning of the book, uh, you know, what, what distinguishes law from, um, from other um, modes of social organization, you know, mm -hmm. informal norms, and every society is bounded by rules. Um, it d wouldn't be a functioning society if it didn't have rules. And the question is, you know, is, is law different in any way? And you can say it's a qualitative sh shift or it's something that is just another iteration of what we know. But I think the... What what law and states do is that they have institutionalized power in a certain way, and you know, in the best of all worlds, they also have institutionalized power, so that this power is accessible to each one of us to use for our private undertakings, for our private contracts, and we can go back to it and and, and use it. But it's always the important thing is that somebody can help us enforce our rights, our contracts, and our especially property rights and 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 other things against others who haven't been part of the deal. Right, um, and so we can't do this on our own. We need the help from something else, and we use the as a as a shortcut, a uh, shorthand for it, the the, the term state. Um, now, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm showing, of course, in the book that you can use the law that states have produced to actually. Um, uh, push back a lot against the powers of any individual state and you can create entire private empires of law you know I talk about the um, international swaps and derivatives associations it's its master agreement which is a private piece of legislation as they would call it that really governs our multi-trillion um, global swaps and derivatives markets and so you can create something out of the stuff that is law and is backed by a state that you can then use to create something totally mm. new and you're trying to hold off the state from intervening into what um, uh, you have created. So this goes back again to this, you know, this, this is some symbiotic relationship between state power um, and private power created from this thing we call law. Um, and they can't do with, without one another, but they're trying to get the most, you know, the worst case scenario is they're trying to uh, take the other side for a right, and yet they sort of belong um, together. And I think for us as a society, um, it is time to think about how we can regain more control over the law and push back against sort of the privatization, the complete privatization, the complete outsourcing of the mm -hmm. law in the name of capital. Mm -hmm. The also on the, on this uh, along the same lines of kind of uh, quoting things from your book to you and then uh, looking for you to elaborate on them. The last paragraph I felt was really striking and uh, and quite pessimistic, frankly. Um, you talk about a few trajectories of you know the the kind of the potential disruption of the system. One is revolution, and I think we've kind of discussed in this conversation. We've alluded to uh, the fact that revolution in kind of a Bolshevik understanding of uh, of its sense isn't probably isn't underway anytime soon there is just not enough juice for it I guess or mm -hmm. is would you agree with this yeah, I, mean, I think that's true but the second traject trajectory and I, I'd like to cite you on this is um, so you say that the second trajectory may sadly already be underway as illustrated by the rampant attacks on independent judiciaries and the free press, not only in relatively young democracies such as Poland or Hungary, but in countries with a long tradition of democracy and the rule of law, such as the United Kingdom and the United States. If these trends continue, naked power will once more gain sway over legal ordering, as it has done over most of human history, and we will all be worse off for it. Mm. <laughs> Just uh, I'd like to hear a quick comment on, uh, on this. 
Yeah, no, I think that this is really um, um, what concerns me most um, is that I think, again, law has these, you know, it has a double face. You can use it to, uh, for power games, private or public, but it's also, this is the way in which we govern ourselves. And I think this is also a way in which that we, a, a mode of social ordering that has helped us to put some checks on, on power and the institutions we have created to do so, some of the most important institutions are, of course, the legislature but also the courts and the free mm -hmm. press. Mm -hmm. And I'm just really concerned that we are eroding the institutional foundations for a rule-bound system, a legally rule-bound um, systems. And we, we, we see this you know, massively in this country, for sure. It's the politicization of the judiciary, the every judicial appointments, the fight over elections mostly to get your control over the the court and then and then the disregard of court decisions i mean if you have a president that says that a mexican judge will not rule in my favor or i will you know these are not my guys let's say even on the uh, um, uh, the federal reserve bank board i mean the central bank might be a different issue but mm -hmm. but similar comments about courts i think that will degenerate in the public eyes these institutions even more so if they're not mine and not my, on my side and means you disrespect the idea that there could be anything close at least approximating an idea ideal of an independent and hopefully impartial um, judiciary and without that we're losing the checks and balances that law has given us um, to to control power and and then what's left right are there any other institutional mechanisms that we currently have i i might not just seeing them i'm just seeing the the erosion um, of 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 the law and so it's same with press right um, uh, mm -hmm. who owns the press who controls it the attack on the press it's all fake news um, we're no longer holding regular press conferences in the White House. Um, everything is, is sort of attacked. That is a, an attack in political terms. We've lived with this for in this country for over 200 years, that there can be disagreements and that we can attack each other, but we would not attack sort of the notion of what are facts and what is news and that there should be a free, free press. So I find that frightening because it really takes away um, the foundations of a, a, a order, an order that can be actually a, a meaningful, socially and, and politically meaningful order grounded in law and, and legal institutions. Mm -hmm. And what is the long-term worst case scenario of this? Well, it will erode and you will get scenarios that people are already openly talking about is, you know, um, you know, how do we manage transitions of power? How do we manage the open attack on power so we can have less freedom of speech? We can have less, um, we have stronger executives. We have um, partial courts that um, side with the executive, which means that is a frontal attack on the freedom of everybody who's not on the side of those currently in power. We know exactly how this looks like. We have too many examples still around us and too many examples in history. We've seen autocracies and totalitarian regimes of every stripe. And we just have to put our imagination to thinking about how this would look like in an internet society or like, you know, what, what would be the, mm -hmm. the variations on that theme in the beginning of the 21st century. But I mean, this was, we, we know exactly how this looks, right? There will be dissidents, they might be in jail. We're sort of treating humans um, in a largely inhumane um, fashion. Currently, we're doing this actually not only with the people who come over the 
order but many others as well if you look at the prison system here and there at least has been a movement at some point that we have to reform the prison system i think it's it's no longer a meaningful one one could think about even worse worse scenarios than we currently have so there you know i think on every front where you have think you know this is you know what is a decent society that cares about every individual um, in a way that respects his or her human dignity and aspiration to use the law for her own um, uh, capabilities and, and and development if you take that away we are on our own and um uh, yes, it's it's not a pretty picture. So that's why I'm ending this on a sort of negative tone because I think we are at a moment where we have to think very hard about um, how to regain control over a system that might allow us to reorder it and, and, and reinvigorate some of the old ideas but also use the law in, in, in new ways um, to promote new ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty. And... Yeah, I guess uh, also I, I really agree with your kind of view on how careful we should be uh, with saying that the system doesn't work. And you mentioned at the beginning the low middle class stagnation and other groups of population have been on really the um, have been the losers of the neoliberalism and globalization and kind of the uh, commodification of the economy and so on and so forth. But I think you know it's it's easy to it's easy to kind of spiral down to saying that the whole system is corrupt and none of it works and all of it is against me yeah. instead of saying okay well this part is wrong this part is wrong that part is wrong so we should fix those and maybe then the system can can be better or can can be valuable to me and kind of to my um aspirations yeah no I, I agree with that i think this is um, and this sort of negative talk is so pervasive that it uh, um, blinds us to the things that we could possibly do and, and should definitely do mm -hmm. talking about the things that we could do that's the uh, question i always ask in the end of uh, uh the interviews on this podcast is uh a question that is on my mind uh on on my mind and on my listeners mind certainly they are mostly students and young professionals and um there seems to be a lot of different careers to choose from, but there is also a lot of uh, talk about your skills, the skills that you gain now, the careers that you are looking for now and not exist in 20 years. So it's this kind of strange time to uh, to graduate and to start work knowing that, well, maybe your your days as, as a, let's say, a lawyer or as, a, as an accountant are numbered because of mm. all kinds of different um, factors you know, not just the machines, but also competition from the, the global economy and different countries and so on and so forth. I'd like to, it seems that you, uh, that you have clarity in your mind on what you're doing and, and, and why, uh, and you've ob you're obviously very successful in, in your domain. So I'd like to hear your piece of general opinion on uh, how to go about uh, choosing uh, what you want to do with your life for, uh, let's say, a young professional. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's it's certainly an environment that is different from when I made my choices and when I had my luck to get to where I am and, and both play, play a role here. But I think it's a combination of really um, uh, a sophisticated skill set in, in, in something. And this could be whether it's accounting or law, whether it's digital code, um, technology. But I would add to that, and I think that's something we've forgotten, and you see this in the enrollment data, I would add to that a good sense of... Uh, knowledge about society and history mm -hmm. because whatever new things we 
develop and invent and that move sort of seems to be radically altering everything you know we're still humans and we've have thousands of years of um, human interactions at the social and individual level and we need to know about that and mm -hmm. because many things just come back in a different disguise and many people have said that and Marxists talk about the forests and the tragedy etc but uh, and I don't want to just re-say that but I think a sense of how humans have dealt with new developments how, how they've been able to manage crises how they have been able to move forward as a group um, and maybe also at some level as an individual I think mm -hmm. That would help for any skill set because then you also can spot something is changing and you can rethink about how you might use your skill set for something different, how you could employ it in new ways to not only still be employed but also make a meaningful contribution uh, to society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Now, one of my favorite quotes, I think, is it by, by Mark Twain? The history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes. Yes, this is I beautiful. I think it just yes. makes so much sense on yes. so many different levels. Yeah. Uh, all right, Katharina, thank you very much for your time and thanks for the insightful conversation. Uh, lastly, where can the listeners find you in this digital economy? What's the place to go um, to online and uh, maybe offline? What's the best uh, to read? I'm guessing it's going to be a book, but I'll let you... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, so, um, online, if um, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, Katarina Pistor. Um, you can find um, me at Columbia Law School. I have a personal webpage. I'm just revamping my center's webpage. Um, you know, the book, of course, is out there. I, I hope people read and comment on it so we can begin a conversation. Uh, and, um, and I'm starting to new, work on new projects. <laughs> All right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much, Katharina. Well, thanks, Max, for having Thank me. You. Really enjoyed it. Bye bye. <laughs> Wow, I really enjoyed this conversation, guys. I mean, I hope you kind of had a good, what is it, like an hour and a half or something like that, uh, listening to our conversation with Katharina. But I mean, to me, it was it was absolutely kind of mind-blowing and super thought-provoking. And uh, what a great concept and what a great angle to think about inequalities as something that is really kind of in ingrained into the system uh, and facilitated by our legal system, which we kind of praise as a as a as a positive thing, and it is positive thing uh, in most cases. But as we have explored with Katharina, it really depends on the context, and uh, nothing is given, and uh, you can really change things uh, as long as you have the competence and the drive. In terms of uh, getting the insights into what Katharina is doing or consuming more of her work, you can go to Twitter. And she tweets quite a lot, and I really like her tweets, they're really entertaining. So her handle is at Katharina Pister, and I will spell it for you guys as always. That's K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-A-P-I-S-T-O-R. And the link to purchase uh, the Code of Capital is uh, available somewhere in the description of this podcast. So that's that. As always, selfishly as I am, if you if you want to check out what I'm up to, it's at Max O. Clemenko on Instagram, maxclemenko.com on the World Wide Web. And uh, what else, what else, what else? My Twitter is at Max O. Clemenko too. And the new addition to my social channels is my TikTok. Uh, that's at Max Clemenko. I dropped the O. So um, 
sorry dad that's actually my dad's name that's what we do in ukraine with our middle names we just take dad's name so but i mean nothing again i mean i love my dad and all that <laughs> anyways guys you hope i hope you uh have a good week i hope you have a good day uh wherever you're tuning in from and uh, love you very much and uh, until the next one bye